Don't Talk to Me Unless It's About The Locust and the Bird by Hanan El Sheikh. This is a story that the author wrote from her mother's perspective. So she's telling her mother's life story in the first person as if her mother was writing the book and her mother did help her write the book. And it tells the story of her mother growing up in Beirut in the 1930s, being in a forced marriage, ultimately falling in love with another man, leaving her family. And in the book jacket, it describes it as both a tribute to a strong-willed and independent woman and a heartfelt critique of a mother whose decisions were unorthodox and often controversial. And we've read the first half of the book, so we're talking about everything up to page 151. And Darla, I will let you take it away from here. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, the reason I'm taking it away from here is because the last time that we spoke about the book, I think you were maybe a quarter of the way through and you were having trouble with it. So I want to just, rather than put words into your mouth, I'd love to hear like what was the trouble that you were having with the book getting into it? Yeah. So the challenges I'm having with the book, and I'm still having them, um, is it feels like it's almost covering too much time. Uh, it's just covering a whole life. It feels like it's going fast through everything. And there's not there's not a ton of dialogue. And I'm realizing I really love dialogue in books. And there's, up until recently, there haven't really been other characters really being developed in depth. Um, and like, I mostly read fiction. And so in fiction, the author can kind of tell you what all of the characters are thinking because they're made up people. Um, but obviously this is real. And so she really only knows what her mother was thinking throughout it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm still having trouble with those things. I am now, I feel like just before this halfway point, when she's having this conflict with Muhammad, I'm finding that part interesting because like I wasn't expecting it. Um, I think also maybe that was part of it is like you get on the book jacket, the general gist of what's happening. And so there wasn't a lot of like suspense for me, but I wasn't expecting her and Muhammad to like ever have issues. I thought that they would just always be this like lovely side affair. Um, so I am curious to see kind of how this plays out. I also had forgotten despite being like, oh, I know everything's going to happen. Um, I had forgotten some of the things in the book jacket. I was like, I can't remember if she, does she actually leave her husband or not? Um, and then looking through again, I'm like, oh, good. She is going to, like, I want her to do that. So I look forward to seeing how that plays out. You know, I said, listen, I'm, I'm having trouble with this book. If you don't like it, let's can it. But if you're into it, like, I want to know why and what you're so into. And you were like, yes, I'm really into it. And so I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, a totally different take on this book. Yeah. Yes. I've, I've been into it from the, from the very beginning. I, I wonder if also, like I've always loved, I've always been interested in the Middle East, or at least since I lived here for the first time, I lived in Dubai like 12 years ago um, for a short period of time. And now I live in Amman, Jordan. And so I wonder if part of it is that um, I'm closer to, you know, I'm right next to Lebanon. I one of my closest friends here is Lebanese. Um, and her parents lived with her for a while recently when, you know, Lebanon had, um, has been having its issues. And, um, and so I got to know her parents who 
would have been in Lebanon around this time. So I think maybe it has more of a personal connection, which is one of the reasons why I'm more, I'm, I'm into it. But I also read a lot of, I do read nonfiction. And um, I want to touch base on a couple of things that you said. Which one was like the, like what you talked about, the character development that, you know, she developed Camila because you said she she could know what her mother was thinking. And what's actually interesting about it is like, she she knows what her mother is telling her about what her mother remembers about this period of time that was so long ago, right? So it's almost like three degrees of separation from the actual events happening. Um, so I really respect people who do this kind of writing because it's a lot of, of uh, you know, it is a, uh, it's a nonfiction book, right? It's built as a nonfiction book, but she is having to put like, fill in a lot of ga gaps and like pull a lot of stuff from a lot of different places. Trust her mother, trust her own biases that she might have as she's listening to her mother talk about it. Um, especially such a personal story, right? Her mom left her dad, left her, abandoned her for another relationship. Be hard to just hear that story without bias. So what's interesting is is to think that that the fact that she can either even make us feel like we understand Camilla as a character is is a is a feat. And so I think in some ways I'm just really impressed with how she was able to put this together. Um, and I would also say that there are other characters that I feel are developed. They're just developed more quietly. Like Abu Hussein, for, for example, she had such a great opportunity to just give him, make him like a very one-dimensional character, right? He's this guy who decided to marry his niece who's um or is it his, her sister's husband right so her his sister's younger daughter is like half his age you could very very easily just make him you know an evil character right and very one-dimensional but she adds in these whole pieces of like how pious he is and how religious he is and like and 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 pieces about him that aren't completely unkind and it's not a really obvious character development like it is in fiction like you said like you can pull in whatever facts you want in fiction but all she could get was the information that she somehow remembers or her mom remembers about these people so i i might you know challenge you in the second half to like kind of see the subtleties of the character development as far instead of like the kind of more blatant character development that you can get in fiction. Well, I almost, I feel myself wanting an annotated version of this book because I'd be so fascinated to know what, you know, because she'll, she'll add like the place she has a lot of details, I feel like are in the setting, you know, like the details of like the railing going up a, a staircase. And I'm thinking to myself, does this, did the mom actually remember that? Or like, is this a moment where she's bringing in some, imagination to you know jazz it up and I'm so curious like what are what in this are the straight facts that were told to her where is she maybe embellishing a little or adding because like you said it's it is billed as nonfiction, so she obviously didn't you know fudge big stuff but like it'd be so interesting to know how a story like this does come together 
Yeah. I wonder how much of that, like the scene is through pictures too, or being able to visit, right? She might have been able to go to those houses and see the railing and take pictures of it, or there may be pictures that exist of it for her to be able to then, you know, piece that together in a way that wasn't, you know, creating a a tale about historical fact. I'm listening to a book right now by um, Mary Parr. It's called The Art of Memoir. And she talks about um, the allowances that memoirs give themselves in order to write memoir, right? Because, you know, we, we have all these sayings about, about memory, right? Like there's your story, my story and the truth, right? There's like, nobody actually knows that you can't just be like, this is fact about what happened, right? There's always the way that people feel about what has happened. Um, and she talks about memoirists, memoirists, like, um, uh, you remember the book, a million little pieces. I don't know if you know, like that. Oh yeah. The, and it was like debunked or proven to be. Yeah. False. Like, ter- right. Well, it turns out like James Fry made up what I think they said less than 5% of the book, but the pieces that he made up were pretty um, like instrumental parts to the story, kind of like the most dramatic pieces of the story. Right. And he kind of took these things that may have happened at a much um, less intense level and just, you know, raised the intensity of them to make the book that much more interesting. And he said he kept on going. He, uh, apparently he did a lot of interviews afterwards and said, um, you know, this is what memoirists do. Right. We, we all do this. And she basically says, no, we don't. We don't all like make up, you know, stories to kind of sensationalize our books. But there are allowances that we have to give us ourselves. One is any dialogue that you see in biography or memoir, unless it's recorded, is not real dialogue, right? (laughs) It's all made up dialogue. And she says she does that. And now when she writes, she actually doesn't put quote marks around her dialogue to try to help the reader see that you're like, you're in it with, with me. Like I, we're, you're reading a story, right? You're not hearing direct quotes. So I wonder if that's one reason why Hanan al-Sheikh didn't put in a lot of dialogue. If she's writing nonfiction and she's obviously like such a talented writer and such a professional, so committed to the profession of writing, she probably doesn't want to make up a lot of dialogue. You know, that's going to be a made up part when she think about that, right? If you're sitting, cause you're a writer. So if you're sitting there and you're writing and you're like, I am writing fact about history. Now I'm writing a conversation. You're making that up. You know it, right? So now you're going into like fiction brain to sit there and write and, and make it up. So, um, so I think what I will I look for is the real is the subtleties of character development, the subtleties of the language that's used, because even those little pieces of it is is uh, so impressive to be able to pull that into nonfiction work. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the reasons why I feel like I was you know one I just love the Middle East and it's you know something that's close to my heart um, and physically close to me. And two, I think it just like really appreciated how talented of a writer she is to be able to pull this off. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, knowing that you're working on memoir style writing to think about the things you might notice in a book that I wouldn't because I'm not studying memoir. So yeah, I'll be curious to hear other takeaways you have of like 
this this style of memoir, which is it's not technically a memoir, but is kind of. Which is one of the things that that I found kind of confusing in the beginning. I don't know if you did as well, but when she yes. she started in first person, you found that confusing. She started in first person with herself, right? And then it switched to her mother as first person. And it took me a while of kind of like flipping back and being like, is this her story or is this her mother's story? I, I didn't really feel like there was a really clear transition from one to the other. I also had trouble with that. And I know you often read on audiobooks and get, or uh, actually on an audiobook, this would be very confusing because the only clue you have is the pictures. Did that show up on Kindle? There's a picture of Hanan. Okay. So that's, that's the only reason I knew is because before the prologue, there's a picture of the author and it says Hanan. And then before the first chapter, there's a picture of Camilla and it says Camilla. But I agree. It was, it was confusing. At the same time, I liked her prologue. Like, I'm glad that was in there. And I went and looked at a book I really, really love. It's called Nobody Will Tell You This But Me by Bess Call. But I think I've maybe told you about this. I have it on my my hold list that I keep and I keep on saying deliver later because I've, I'm like, I want to read it because you've talked so highly about it. But, you it's know, so, so other, good. Six and, other books I'm reading. Yeah. Well, so she writes. It's the same idea. She writes basically a memoir from her grandma's perspective, as if her grandma was telling her life story and also telling the story of like the women who came before and after her. And I was like, oh, I wonder how Bess kind of intro that. And she, the entire book is written as if it's from the grandma. There's, you know, the only reason you know it's not from the grandma is like by reading the back of the book. And so that was super clear. But I like that we get a piece of the actual author's life at the beginning here. And maybe we will at the end too. I haven't looked ahead to see if there's some kind of epilogue or something. Which should make sense. I loved how she talked about her reluctance in telling this story, you know, that like her mother would, she would talk about the work that she's doing or an award that she was getting for the stories she was telling about other people's lives. And her mother was just like, why are you telling other people's stories when I'm right here? And I felt like that dynamic was so visceral just to be, I think I would have the other, the opposite issue, which I think my mom would not want to really talk about her past, like, or, or just not be as interested in it. Like so interesting that Camila was like, I want to tell you my story. And Hanan was like, "Mm, you can't do it right now. Right. Until she got to that point where the story was like, okay, you, this needs to be told now. I agree. I that's what I really liked is knowing that the mom was this really strong, confident person who I was like, you think you're writing about oppressed people? Like, hello, did you forget my childhood? I forget now actually though, what was Hanan's resistance to why didn't she want to write it to start? What I gathered from it is that it's, you know, personal story for her, right? Her mom's story is it brings up as for a lot of us, but especially in this brings up a lot of trauma for Hanan. In leaving her husband, even though it was an arranged marriage and leaving her husband, she also left her daughters, which is Hanan, right? So she abandoned her daughters in a household that, you know, we don't really know much about Hanan's childhood yet, right? And her perspective, since this is all from the perspective of Camilla, but it couldn't have been easy. and. 
and and so I think it's I mean to me if I was her that would be a really hard story that'd be that's like writing and doing uh intensive you know therapy at the same time and I think you know I always believe that everything you know happens exactly the way it's supposed to and so she in a way she is such a gifted writer and if you read anything about her online, like you can just see all the awards that she's gotten and how revered she is in the, in, in writing and, and in, in Lebanon as a, as a figure. And she had to hone that craft, right? She, a lot of people talk about their, they cringe at their first books, right? They go back after writing other books and they look at their first ones. They're just like, that is terrible. <laughs> and so I can imagine she didn't want to write that story about her own life early on. I don't know. That's how I would feel. I'd be like, let me, let me craft that a little bit more. I say that even though I'm like writing memoir style right now. So it'll be this part of my life. That'll be really crappily written about, but other parts will be better. <laughs> yeah. I'm not getting any sense of like resentment or anger towards her mom in the first half of the book. It seems like to me, I've been reading it like, wow, this is, totally justified like any struggle my mom had because look how challenging her upbringing was look at all the things she was up against and at the same time you know knowing that quote I read from the book jacket in the intro I know that that's going to turn because in the second half is when Camilla leaves her family and leaves Hanan and so I'm very curious how that's going to be written there's this incredible amount of I almost think about it as like things being set down in order to do this book, right? Like Hanan's resentment or whatever feelings she had, she can't insert that into Camilla's story because it's a Camilla story and and that would be disingenuous. And so it would um, it would be rewriting history. It would, wouldn't be memoir. And so she does have to like not how I mean how interesting would that be? I wonder how many rewrites that takes to go back and be like and take her own opinion out of it mm -hmm. right and then on the other side the other setting down that had to happen was her mom I mean think about in 30 years telling Ada your story about your life there's a lot of not flattering pieces that Camilla has obviously shared with her daughter that's a lot of setting down of an ego, you know? Definitely. Well, I think about it even now in that I, you know, I'm trying to write about motherhood, as you know, right now. And I think about a lot of the challenges I have with motherhood and, you know, oh gosh, like how do I want, how do I want to share those in a way that's honest and will help other mothers and also would not be misconstrued by Ada reading this in the future and being like, oh, my mom was having a hard time when I was a baby. Like, does she not love me? And the permanency of words, you know, it's very different from any other medium. And then on top of that, the fact that her mom is, you know, I, I don't know if still, but illiterate through most of her life. And her daughter is a prolific writer. That's something that I've read about that mothers have or parents have issue with that you know, they get, they start to become intimidated by their children. Their children have more, often have more opportunities than them. They get, have a higher education than them. You know, that's what we hope for our children, right? They have a better life than we did. You, as good as our lives may be, we always hope that theirs is better. And so if we're successful in that, we really have to let go of a lot of those things, those expectations of what we had for ourselves and the jealousy that we might have for our own child. 
And I'm kind of under the impression, I think we'll find out, but that she was illiterate throughout her whole life. And it's, I think uh, it says here that uh, Camilla died in 2001. But I think I remember her sharing that at the time of this, of her saying, hey, you should write my life story. She was still illiterate and wasn't able to do it herself. And there are so many points in the book where I just so take for granted literacy and was just every time kind of like, felt like I was like hitting the chest of like, oh my gosh, she has to, she got this letter from Muhammad, but she has to wait five days until she can find someone to read it to her. And then she has to respond in a picture and just being reminded again and again, the incredible power literacy gives you that I totally take for granted. I see it more now that I've moved here than I have in, than I did when I was in America. Actually, there's two reasons I see it more now. One is because I'm living in a country where English, where my native tongue is not the the first language spoken. So I'm constantly, you know, every day, all day long, I'm constantly in situations in which I don't understand what's going on around me. And that would be similar to if you're walking down the street and you can't read any sign, you can't read anything around you. I also can't understand a lot of the language that's being spoken around me. So I understand that a little bit more. I also am often around people who are expats or immigrants from other countries who my husband and I came here by choice for his job. And because English is our first language, we are both learning Arabic, but we could get away with not, you know, I, I know expats here who have been here for six years and don't, don't know any Arabic. Um, whereas if you move from another country and English is not your first language, you now have to learn pro maybe both of those languages, Arabic and English to get by. And, um, and it may not be as much of a choice, right? I know a lot of people here have friends who had to move here because there's no work in their home, especially friends from Southeast Asia who had to come here because they had to, to go somewhere where there were jobs, where they could send money home. And they didn't get the benefit of paying a high tuition fee and going to the best Arabic school here and learning the language. They just had to get by on learning it. So we, I often, before this, I really thought there was like literacy and illiteracy, right? And there's like a line down the middle, but it's a spectrum. And, and then the other totally unrelated part is my daughter's six and learning how to read. And so I'm helping to teach her how to read. And that's really, that's given me a certain level of understanding as well. And think of someone like Camila, even if she picks up some language here and there, like how she did with the movies, it's not mm -hmm. so cut and dry. You don't just learn it. You kind of like learn it with your own interpretation. So yeah, it would have been really fascinating to have these, I mean, fascinating in not a positive way to be, to have these. It's like very intimate communications that other people would have to decipher for her. And then she'd have to remember it, right? If When you were like dating and you were getting fun text messages from the person you were dating, you get to go back and read those text messages again and again and relive them. She had to remember what that said. You're right. She only had that one chance to hear it. You could see her fascination with languages that she couldn't access, like the movies, for example, but almost seemed like that was part of the draw is that it was this thing she couldn't yet understand and then had to learn. And she loves hearing Muhammad read letters from other people to her. She loves just being read to in any capacity. And it was 
interesting the way that she felt like she got to know his family just by hearing the letters that they wrote to him. I'm always interested in people's families, but I've never had people read me like text messages or emails or things like that from their family members. That's never a way I've gotten to know someone. Yeah, it's interesting because what a great insight that would be. After my grandmother died, we found a box of letters that her boyfriend at the time, I don't think it was my grandfather. It, it's kind of fuzzy. It was a long time ago that we found these, but um, that she had written, I think he was um, overseas and they wrote to each other. And it was really interesting to hear. And somehow I think she had her letters too. I don't know. I can't remember why, but maybe he had given them to her when he returned or something. Anyway, it was really interesting to read those and understand her a little bit more as a young adult in her own voice. Some of it was just so, you know, the normal like pedestrian stuff about life, what she ate that day and, yeah. you know, just... I think she started everyone, I'll have, to, I'll have to call one of my cousins and remind me, but I think she started like every letter or like in the top had her weight, like what her weight was, <laughs> which is like, we were all laughing because we were like, we'd never do that now. <laughs> no, thankfully the times have a change. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the, about like the setting things down. And we mentioned more of what the mother had to sit down. A little bit, but about what Hanan did. But when you think about the the amount of resentment that she could have had and all the, all the other feelings that she could have had as she wrote this, do you feel those feelings? Like, do you, in, the, in her writing, not, I'm not talking about the intro, in how she writes from Camila's point of, point of view, do you feel any, like, resentment or anger or? No, I, I don't. And I feel like, the book jacket made it seem as if I should or will. You know, it says it's it's a heartfelt critique of her, of her mother. And maybe we'll get there because at this point, honestly, in my mind, the mother has done no wrong yet. I disagree with her forced marriage, and I totally understand why she's pursuing this affair with Muhammad. The one part that isn't resentment but is confusing to me in this whole, like, her dynamic as, you know, Camilla becoming a mother is up until her, she became a mother, she was basically like a servant in her own household. And she was constantly, she had to take the boys to school, do the washing, do the food, do all this stuff. She was like, she didn't have time to go have an affair. She had all these chores to do. And then I feel like there's this missing part for me where I'm like, okay, then she became a mother. Seemingly she needs to take care of this baby all day because there wasn't anyone else to do stuff at the house before. And she has all this seemingly free time to go pursue Muhammad, unless I'm misunderstanding when these things happen or what the time span is. But I've been like, wait a second. How has she, got, how has she gotten out of all these like household chores she used to have to do, especially taking care of the baby? Who's with the baby? I don't know if maybe in, their, in her culture, like the dynamic changes. And once you're a mother, then some other young family member has to take on your previous chores. That's yeah, that part hasn't added up for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I didn't really think about that, but it's that's really true. Yeah, I wonder if it is that another family member takes over. She did talk about how in pregnancy you get away with a lot, right? That you you have a lot of of allowances given to you. Yeah, and she got the chicken. Like, what was it for? 
Yeah. I love well, that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and like, and what, wait, wasn't the chicken part of the marriage? Oh, maybe that's Which, what it was when she asked. Yeah. Her. She was like, I want a fresh yeah. chicken. <laughs> From a restaurant. Or no, she yeah. wanted a restaurant chicken, uh, not a fresh one. Yeah. And then also it was like 40 days after she delivered or something, you know, mm-hmm. for a while. And so I wonder, you know, that's a long period of time. You know, that's like 10 months, right? Of Or at least eight months from finding out you're pregnant to getting through those 40 days that, you know, dynamics change, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, so maybe that is who took over during that period of time. And maybe that person is the one who, who continues. And it might not only be a younger person, but maybe the older women in the household become the ones that take care of the kids as the, mm-hmm. you know, the babies as the like younger ones are doing the chores. I guess the one way in which it wasn't, it's not resentment, but it is, there's like Hanan is a missing piece of this story and her sister, right? It was her older sister. At this point in the book, I don't even have a sense of how old they are because we get no details about them. I don't know if that is maybe a sign of, listen, we weren't even on her radar because she was just focused on Muhammad. And so like, it's not important to tell. We don't get any stories of like, and then she was playing this game or she was looking forward to getting home to the baby or the baby was this older. This is what was happening in the baby's life. And it's funny critiquing this almost as if it's fiction because it's not. It's somebody's life. But I remember someone telling me how, you know, in American stories, literature, TV, movies, if someone's a mother, that's like the thing about them. And you're focusing on that part of their identity and their story. Whereas they gave the example of French films and literature, someone could be a mother and that's like not even ever discussed. I think my friend watched a movie and they were like, oh yeah, it was about someone having an affair and the main character was a mother, but we never saw her with her kids. Like that wasn't important. And so I see the merits to being like, okay, that's not the only thing we need to focus on about a person. And at the same time, this story, you know, it's called my mother's story. And that's such a clear dynamic of it that it feels like a missing piece. Yeah, especially since you are reading it from the context of being an American mother, right? Where it's like, I can't imagine anyone writing anything about my story that wouldn't have to do with me being a mom, even though I'm, I know there are, you know, I contain multitudes and there are many other pieces of me. And I'm not one of those people who I feel like, like everyone always talks about the way that I parent, where I just kind of like take my kid along for the ride, you know, like, like Ezra and I wanted to expatriate. So we were like, all right, well, we're just taking our kid with us now. Um, she does a lot of adult things with us because we're like, well, we want to eat, you know, this food. So you're just coming to eat this food with us. But still, that would be a huge piece of my story. I mean, it is in my memoir writing, you know, it's a huge piece of who I am. So yeah, it is, it is fascinating to try to set our own context aside as we, as we read to hear it from, because not every culture is like that, like you pointed mm-hmm. out. So to hear it from a different culture. Do you feel like you're reading any resentment or kind of like hard feelings through the writing in this first half? I don't feel like I am. I feel like she's giving a really rounded view of her mother. She talks about her, the pieces of her mother that aren't that flattering. She talks about pieces that like her mother's sense of humor, which is, and the kind of the prankster in her mom. She talks about those pieces of it. Hanan al-Sheikh is referred to, I've seen in articles referred to as a reluctant feminist. And 
I see that she kind of wrote wrote Camila, whether Camila actually is, or she wrote her this way as like, I would call her an accidental feminist or like an accidental activist, right? She's, especially early on, maybe she didn't realize how she was really trying bucking the system. But she writes, Hanan writes about those pieces of her mom, you know, the activist feminist pieces of her mom. She writes about the the really sad pieces of her. So I think if she were bringing along resentment, anger, something like that, you would see a less well-rounded version of who her mother is. You know, she'd want to think about when you have a conflict with someone, you want to pigeonhole them, right? They are in this category. And so because I think she does this really holistic view of her mother, we don't, I, I don't see that. And at this point in the story, what is the mom, like 17? She can't be that old. And so I, I know I've been reading it with this lens of great forgiveness because she's young and she's in a really shitty situation. I love that she plays pranks on her husband who's like 40 and she doesn't want to be married to. So I'm curious kind of how that will change as the story follows her as she gets older and maybe she'll do more things that kind of push my buttons or make me question things. Hopefully. Because that leads to interesting conversations when your buttons are pushed. It does. Honestly, (laughs) I find that the books I like the most, usually I really hate the characters or I hate one character a lot or something. But it's interesting thinking about the, like the lens we all bring to it. You know, you gave the example of Abu Hussein. He's, he's not necessarily painted purely as bad. They talk about how pious and religious he is. And I actually read that as proof of his badness. Like, oh, he's getting too deep into, and this applies, I think, to any religion that I have kind of a story in my head of like any religion, if you go too deep, you're getting stuck in some narrow views of the world. And he, in my mind, had a very narrow view of marriage and women's rights. But you're right, the way it's presented is totally neutral. It's not actually presented as good or bad. Because that can go both ways, right? I wonder if you would actually feel that way if you think about the Dalai Lama, pretty religious, right? Pretty deep pretty deep in it. But does, is that proof that he's like a bad person? No, we probably would revere the level of depth he's got into the religion. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to think of that in, you know, if, if Dalai Lama was really deep into the religion, also married an 11 year old, we'd have a different view. Right. Yep. So that's what, how I feel like we do, we get these multitude, we do get these pieces of her dad that probably took a lot to, to, for her to, to have some understanding about, or for Camila to have some compassion about. And that's the other thing, the view of someone like Abu Hussein, which who Hanan obviously knows well, because it's her father, how much of his character development from the past is her and how much of his character development is what Camila has told her. Well, what's funny is that up until we started having this conversation, I had completely disconnected that that's her dad. In my mind, I was like, this is the old guy who her mom has to get married to. And she, you know, she's just hearing about him through her mom. And then I'm like, wait, duh, this is her actual dad. <laughs> yeah. So there's like another thing, right? He also provided for the family, right? You can't just leave him because we made him. And like, that was always kind of unclear to me. Like, did... She has she not left him yet because she needs him or just because of all the cultural taboos and she's seen women getting dragged on donkeys 
through the streets for having an affair. What was your take on that? I think it was not any cut and dry situation, right? It's not one or the other. I think the the shame and the physical harm that she would have to to take on if she were to leave him is one aspect of it. And also, this is what she knows. This is her family and he is supporting the family. I think it would be true if you have any friends who who have ended their marriages. You know, I have friends who have ended their marriages who would have the same things. They can, you can kind of boil it down to one thing to say, okay, this is, this is the straw that broke the camel's back, but there have been, there's all these other pieces that kind of, that add into it. You and I being the privileged white Americans that we are, will never be able to empathize with the taboo and that's associated with leaving your husband in a culture, in that culture that she was in. On top of all the cultural barriers there, I always was reminding myself, this was taking place basically 100 years ago, like a very long time ago. Not, this was not in the 1980s. That is a whole nother barrier of generation and time. There's so many layers to it, which is another reason why I love reading books like this, because it gives us a window into a world that is real and one that we will never experience. We can't. We can't go back in time and experience this. You know, you can go travel to Lebanon and understand a little bit of Lebanese culture, but even then, you're not really understanding Lebanese culture unless you move there. And then if you move there, you still have to integrate into Lebanese culture to understand Lebanese culture. And then you have to study the history of Lebanese culture to understand what was happening 100 years ago. I mean, there's so many layers of it that is like, to me, books like this, I think why I'm so fascinated by them is to me, it's like the ultimate time travel. It's the ultimate, like being able to experience something that I will never be able to experience. And when an author does it as well as Hanan al-Sheikh does, it's like, just gives me this view into something that I will never be able to experience. And that's such a gift, such a gift for a writer to be able to write that way. But do you have any predictions or hopes or anything like that for the second half? I always have such a hard time with this question because it's, it's going to sound kind of trite to say it, but I'm always, I, I feel like I'm very present with a book. Like I'm in this present moment with the book. And I've never formulated that part of me that can form an opinion about what's supposed to happen in the future. I'm like, I'm just along for the ride. So um, it's always a challenge when we talk of when we have this, because we talk about this at every halfway point that we get in a book. I'm more interested in the second half now. And I already was really into it. But seeing if I can see any of those, the pieces of what we talked today, do I see, do I see any of, um, uh, Hanan's like resentment or anger? Or do I see any over uh, an abundance of compassion or empathy for her mom, right? Do I see character development in a different way after us talking about it? Do I see the subtleties that I noticed in the first, in the first half? Do those continue? Do I see more subtleties that I didn't see before? What you talked about of like explaining the scenes in such detail. You know, I just want to see if these patterns continue. And plus we know the story. So you know, right. It's not we like know. Hope she leaves her husband. <laughs> yep. <laughs> we know that's coming. I am very curious to know how that happens. Also, how this current conflict to do with Muhammad resolves itself. And I'm also wondering, like, how late in her mother's life does the story go? Do we come up to the present moment where she decides to write the book or does it stop when Hanan is only 
20. Because I would be very curious to know what their adult relationship looked like. And when they seem to kind of come back together, how that happened. I love thinking about you not having predictions or thoughts on the second half of the book. It's like, this is what I used to always say with our dog Rainbow is like, isn't it amazing? She just hops in the car every time. She has absolutely no idea if we're getting in for 20 minutes or seven hours. She has no idea where we're going, what's happening. And she's just like, I'm here always. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, what my what my friends, we, we refer to as the darble. It's the Starla bubble that I live in. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I'm reading a book. That's so exciting. <laughs> it's like this childhood wonder that's somehow at 42 years old, I still haven't let go of. But but I do want to say what you just talked about of like, I, I am curious. I am curious. How does she leave her husband in a way that doesn't destroy her life physically, right? Like, how is she not killed for this or shamed for this or driven out of town well i was noticing even in the book description it says finally after a decade so we actually know we must have many more years to go before she leaves this marriage finally after a decade her husband gives her a divorce but she must leave her children behind and just that language like you said is like a totally different way from the western world you know the u.s at least how you would never say someone gives someone else a divorce. It's like they got divorced. And she had to leave her children behind. Right. Like, oh, no that's a sharing. big departure from how we, yeah, no sharing. And in our, in our culture, it's more likely that the mother would get custody or that it would be shared. I think it's becoming more shared. But like when my parents got divorced, there kind of wasn't really much of a question as to who got the kids. It's interesting to think about like, she's only halfway through this relationship with Muhammad while being married to Abu Hussein. So there's still so much more of that to do, to go through. The longer, the older her children are, the more seemingly of a relationship she has formed with them. And so the harder I imagine that must've been. Yeah. To consciously make that decision. The ultimate self-care. Leaving your children. We're not going <laughs> to leave you. We're not going to leave you, Izzy and Ada. <laughs> we're just, we're just going to go on a vacation. I think that really covered it until for now. And as usual, when we get to these conversations, I'm so much more interested. I'm like ready to read the second half. Hey, this is Ola from Slow Reading Ola. One of my favorite traits of Camila is her sense of humor. I don't think a character has made me laugh as much as she has. I mean, the cruelty she faced is unfathomable, you know, in the way she was forced to, to marry this older man who was once her brother-in-law and whom she didn't even know she was agreeing to marry when the religious ceremony was taking place. At one point, she pranked him by inviting a gentleman caller to ask for her hand from her husband's house by pretending to be single. And she left the whole thing off. And I mean, you know, as as dark as, as, as that humor is in that particular situation, you do root for her and you do, you almost feel happy about her getting away with so much because of her backstory, but also because of how lighthearted she remains throughout the book, even in some of her darkest moments. My name is Paulina and I have read The Locust and the Bird. And I love this book a lot. I think it really touched a part of me that I haven't really been seeing reflected in books, which is that of 
daughters telling their mother's stories, um, especially when their moms can't tell their own story due to literacy or language barriers. There are a lot of things that you could think of when you read Camila's story, who's the mom and who goes through a lot of very painful, awful things in her life, and yet she still survives and she still perseveres. And she's so intelligent and able to figure out ways to to live her life and to really pursue what she really wants. And of course, that comes at a lot of costs to other people, to her family, to the people she leaves behind. But I think that is probably like that message of you can't really know how somebody can make a very awful decision at some point in their lives when so much is at cost. It's not necessarily relying on logic. It's relying on your emotions and your passion and what you really, really value in your life. And in that sense, the women in the story, they have to lie, they have to cheat, they have to blackmail. But really, was there any other way in the society that they were living in? Was there any other way when the men really just dictated everything when they had the power and the women were just meant to follow along and do whatever the men said or whatever tradition and culture said? And so I think the thing that makes this book the most special is that fact that it's a real story of the author's mother and that it's so powerful because Hanan is able to tell her mother's story in such an impactful way. And that is what made this book so memorable to me. You know what would make this podcast even better? Me saying like less. And more importantly, this show would be better if you were on it. We want every episode to include audio messages from you. To make this happen, you need to know what the episodes will be about ahead of time. And I can share that with you when you get the podcast newsletter. Sign up at DontTalkToMePod.com. And you know that thing they all say about, please leave me a review? It would be really cool if you did that. So give it a thought. Hopefully a five-star thought. Thank you. Thank you.